Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Juan Francisco Matamoros-Anin, the host of the channel. Today, we are going to be talking to Dr. Rosaline Vega about her new book called Nested Ecologies, a multi-layered ethnography of functional medicine. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Vega. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. I, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. I'm a medical anthropologist and a social epidemiologist. I am currently associate professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, where I am uh, the program coordinator of the graduate studies in um, anthropology and also the program coordinator for medical humanities. That's uh, very interesting. Now, I want to jump right into the content of your book. So just to describe this general structure, you have chapters that in, in between you have interludes. So that's the order we'll be following. So I want to start with the prelude. It's called Anthropology of and for Healing. Can you tell us a bit about that chapter, Dr. Absolutely. Uh, the book starts in this moment of crisis where I was in a major car accident and I totaled my car. And um, I won't give too much of the details away, but I had to pause for a moment and reflect and realize what was happening to me. And this was kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back on a, a building health crisis that had been um, emerging over really my whole life. Um, and I decided that I needed to turn that ethnographic lens on myself and on my health issues to be able to solve them because there was no other way that I was going to be able to improve. And I felt you know, pretty desperate. So I had already, you know, written my first book, published uh, numerous articles, but at this point, I really needed to make my own health um, key to to the research project that I was going to embark on, and so that kind of explains how this book began and what the impetus was for it, although the book definitely goes far beyond my own health issues, but it was definitely motivated by a personal need. Great. Um, I think that it's followed by an actual introduction. So while as in the prelude, you give an introduction to your journey. Well, in the introduction, I'm really introducing you to my methods, which were somewhat unconventional. I took a braided approach, or you can say I wrote in three registers. One of them was obviously autoethnography. I think that although I had to be more vulnerable than I'm used to, to reveal my own health struggles, that was something that I needed to do in this book because it was the only honest way to write the book. I needed to reveal 
how I was invested, what my involvement was, um, et cetera. So that's one register. The second register is traditional ethnography. I participated in and completed um, continuing medical education credits and attended summits and conferences where I was able to interact with functional medicine providers. And then the bulk of the research was digital ethnography, which is something that's newer to me. Um, I dipped a little bit into it in my first book, but here I really did a lot of digital ethnography where I was attending online summits and conferences, webinars, um, watching YouTube videos, participating in Facebook groups with hundreds of thousands of other patients like me. And I, weaving together those three different methods, I was able to produce this understanding of functional medicine and the community of practitioners and the community of patients and um, relationships among those. Obtained my PhD in medical anthropology, I was on track to become a physician. I was accepted to the program in liberal medical education at Brown University when I was 17, I believe, out of high school. It's an eight-year medical continuum that combines medical school and undergraduate uh, in with the major of your choice. And immediately from the get-go, I had hospital privileges. I was shadowing physicians. I was, you know, um, I had observerships and internships in hospitals. And I was really getting um, the fleshy sort of front row understanding of what my life would be like as a physician. And at the same time, I was taking courses um, in a liberal education format, and I took a course in medical anthropology called Culture and Health. And in that course, I really started thinking about all of the structural issues that affect how people experience and access healthcare. And that opened my eyes to so many things that are um, kind of that contextualize the clinical experience. And I started to ask hard questions to my mentors um, about what their lives were like. And I realized that I really wanted to pursue a career in medical anthropology. So Dr. Vega, can, can, can you tell us a bit about chapter first called Paradigm Shifts? Absolutely. In that chapter, I'm introducing the audience to functional medicine, which many people have not heard of. And some of the key differences between conventional medicine and functional medicine have to do with functional medicine practitioners' critiques of pharmaceuticalization and medicalization, and also just the, the structure within which conventional medicine unfolds. I want to clarify that most of the functional medicine practitioners that I was observing were MDs who had previously worked within the conventional medicine structure. And I want to say that because I know that many people may, may doubt or assume, um, may think that functional medicine practitioners are some sort of pseudoscientific uh, practitioners. And I will say that 
although functional medicine is open, for example, the Institute of Functional Medicine provides a certification to a wide range of health professionals that extends beyond MDs. However, they must be health professionals that hold a license um, to, to practice, and most of them are MDs. So um, I have, through over the course of my ethnographic research, have noticed a few hanger honors that um, kind of are, are skirting the edge of pseudoscience and therefore might bring a bad name to all of functional medicine, to put it in those terms. Um, but I do want to reiterate that most of the people that I was observing were MDs who had previously practiced in conventional medicine, but had encountered a moment where they either became frustrated with the tools that they had, which were mostly pharmaceuticals, or the structure in which they were working where they only have you know 15 minutes or on, on average eight minutes per consult per patient um, because of health insurance structures or because they had a personal health crisis or a family member, a loved one had a health crisis and they discovered that the tools that they had been given with their conventional medicine training was really lacking to meet these chronic health problems. And so I also want to clarify that many of these uh, functional medicine practitioners really defend conventional medicine when it comes to acute care. We're talking about surgeries, trauma, um, things where you really need conventional medicine. But their critique really goes to the pharmaceutical management, ongoing, potentially lifelong management of chronic diseases, for example, autoimmune diseases, where they feel that we really need to be getting to the root causes of these diseases. As I mentioned before, diet, nutrition, exercise, uh, sleep hygiene, stress management really play a huge part um, instead of continually prescribing to these patients indefinitely. Yes, and I, I think it's very interesting certain um characteristics of uh, functional medicine that you mentioned that make it different than uh, conventional medicine. For example, the fact that it's more applied, more present with uh, new findings that sometimes uh, conventional medicine takes a lot more time to implement. And I think that you also uh, make a have a critical standpoint on functional medicine as well. You, you, you're clear on uh, the privileged part of it, and it's just something that you mentioned across the book, and also the fact that you draw similarities with anthropology and kind of mention the need for it to be more in dialogue with it. Is that correct, doctor? Oh, yes, absolutely. I, As you mentioned in the introduction, I bring up the concept of hyper self-reflexivity, and I am so hyper-aware, especially given where I'm living here on the U.S.-Mexico border and the really severe health problems in my community. Um, diabetes is, I think, like 30% of the adult population here, and most of the people living in my community would not have access to functional medicine. Functional medicine, because it, it's still struggling to be accepted as mainstream, um, although there have been some, uh, there has been some progress, but it's still usually not 
reimbursable with insurance. So those who are able to access it are paying out of pocket. And it can be very, very, very expensive. Um, So I'm hyper aware of the dollars and cents that I spent to purchase my health back and how most people in my community would not be able to do that and that I was only able to recover because of my privilege. And so on the one hand, I want to... Um, point to the merits of functional medicine. And on the other hand, I want to access some of, I mean, I want to, I want to critique some of these socioeconomic structures that really limit access. And so I'm trying to take a very balanced approach to functional medicine, even though it was something that has really benefited me. Yes. And I think that's um, um, proper guide into the following interlude, which is called Stuck in a Wave of Chronic Disease, because you've also mentioned it from a personal standpoint, your relationship to functional medicine. Is that correct, doctor? Yes. Stuck in a Wave of Chronic Disease is really kind of a almost chronological um, exploration of how I got to that moment that was a health crisis in my life. And this is not something that just happens overnight. Most functional medicine patients are what we call complexly ill, meaning they have multiple overlapping um, issues that require this specialized attention. And and sometimes, you know, they've sought all kinds of care in conventional medicine and been to multiple specialists, and they're really struggling to find the answers. Um, So it's not something that happens overnight. And it can be a little bit, um, it sneaks up on you, in the sense that, for me, it began as, um, you know, migraines as a child, acne as a child, uh, constipation as a child, and it just kind of grew and grew. And later it was IBS and then cervical dysplasia. And um, I, I continued to have migraines that led to ocular migraines where I couldn't see straight to, to drive or to do my daily activities. Um, and I kind of just give you a chronicling of how this occurred. And it's actually presented in the form of something that I had written for a functional medicine provider because they ask you to tell you the story of how you got to that moment in your illness. And this is very distinct from conventional medicine where you have you know, those eight precious minutes in the consultation room and you really just have to get in and get out and, and hopefully you were able to ask the question that you wanted or present the most important thing to you. This is an opportunity. Usually the first visit with a functional medicine practitioner is at least an hour and a half long. So you have this opportunity to really tell them your story as it relates to your health and and how they're going to be able to treat you. Because only with all of those details can they properly diagnose you. Can they properly see how these things interrelate? Can they can they understand that web of disease that you're dealing with so that they can begin to dismantle it? So Dr. Dr. Vega, moving on to chapter two called Systems Biology, I think it's a very important chapter because it lets you know um, about Functional medicine, what, what what it distinguishes it from uh, traditional conventional medicine. Can you tell me a bit about that chapter, please? And also about your concept of nested ecologies, because here's when you start using it, I believe. Yes. So in conventional medicine, we have all these different silos, all these different specialists where 
dermatology only deals with skin. Gastroenterology only deals with the gastrointestinal system. And that's based off of this, you know, if you really come to think of it, somewhat arbitrary division of the body into these separate parts. Whereas functional medicine argues that the body is a whole and really all of these parts are connected and they function as a system. That's where the term system biology comes from. And so I heard um, an example that if you were to take a magic marker and draw on someone's skin and keep that drawing and draw right into their mouth and right down their esophagus and right through their stomach and down their intestines and out the other end, you, you would be on the same surface. And so this idea that these parts are distinct really kind of misses the point that the bo- that the body is one unified system. So a systems biology approach looks at the entire person and not only the person as in, you know, their their body as a as a whole, but also how the person is situated in context. And that context might be ecological. It might be the toxins that they're exposed to, you know, if there's mold in their house, um, so on and so forth. It also is the the sociocultural um, context, their 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 stress level, you know, any family dynamics that they might have, so on, and the food that they're eating, which is often shaped by by socioeconomic um, and cultural factors, and so they really need to to take the person as. Um, a whole that's a situated whole in a context, right? And so the the concept of nested ecologies is talking about this external ecology that has, um, you know, socioeconomic and cultural and uh, just social ecological components, everything that makes up our environment, um, and that's the the external sort of ecology. And then the internal ecology is the body that is comprised of microbes and fungi and parasites and um, you know cells, so on and so forth, human and otherwise. And um, thinking of the person as uh, a Russian nesting doll in which we have this external ecology and we have an internal ecology. And those things are inseparable and nested always. Very interesting. And I think that you mentioned that the existence of chronic diseases currently in, for example, in children is a sign of all the times and how we are all interconnected. Now, after that chapter is the interlude called genetic fate. Could you tell us a bit bit about it, please? Yes, I um, part of this journey, my health journey, was to endeavor into my own genes so that I could intervene on them via epigenetic means. And in that process, I discovered different single nucleotide polymorphisms that I have um, that you can consider as my genetic predispositions, my, my genetic vulnerabilities. And um, some of those have to do with detoxification. And I don't mean, you know, uh, Hollywood, green juice sort of thing. I'm talking about my liver's ability to detoxify. Um, the detoxification process has phase one, phase two, and my ability to do that um, and to clear not only exogenous toxins from the world, but also just things that my own body produces like estrogen. Um, So I was looking into that, starting to understand 
why uh, in my family there's a, a very strong family history of dementia, which is due to BDNF. Um, it's non-Alzheimer's, but I do have a strong family predisposition towards dementia, um, which is bad news when you're a professor. <laughs> Also, uh, you know, I have a strong family disposition towards cervical cancer. Um, my very first bout with cervical dysplasia, I was HPV negative, um, but I, I have a multi-generational history of cervical cancer. And at the time I had been in an arsenic sort of ridden environment and um, having very high heavy metals. And so I started to understand kind of why these things happen in my family, why they were happening to me, which then, you know, instead of thinking it as, thinking of it as um, this terrible news that you don't want to know because it's telling you how, how your, your fate is and your terrible fate and how your life is going to end, like all the ways that you can die. Um, I was trying to follow functional medicine wisdom and turn that on its head to figure out all the ways I could live. How could I use that knowledge about my vulnerabilities to make myself stronger and to address, you know, some of those issues and hopefully preempt them by providing my body with the resources that it uniquely needed. I I also think it's an important moment in the book because to me as a reader, it seems like you start finding meaning also in your personal journey. And and then it's also when you start discussing functional medicine in relation to other contexts and social relationships that involve it now. Chapter three, it's called Epigenetics and its Multiple Implications. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about that chapter, please? Yes. So in that chapter, I talk about how functional medicine really, really celebrates the power of epigenetics. And as I kind of alluded to uh, in the interlude, you have your genes And then you have an ability to influence your genes. And a way that we can think about this is that your genes are like light switches. They're there. You can't do anything to change them. But you can either turn them on or turn them off. And that changes everything. So in a functional medicine perspective, knowing someone's genetic kind of predisposition is very empowering. And they are coming up with all kinds of new research regarding um, how to influence genetic expression. Some of this is based on science, for example, um, from Dr. Randy Jirtle, which is showing how, and there's a, a diagram in the book about mice that are um, exposed to BPA or not exposed to BPA, and uh, the agouti gene gets activated or deactivated. So although they're twin mice, one is blonde-colored and obese, and the other one is slim and brunette, even though they are genetically identical mice. And so many people think that phenotype is totally determined before birth. This really isn't the case. We have so much power and ability to determine our health and well-being and just what our bodies do. And so um, a lot of this new understanding is really empowering. And a lot of the research has to do with anti-aging and how to live longer, but not just longer, not just longevity, but also health span, not just lifespan, but health span, how to live well and healthy longer. 
Yes, and I think it's also key to understanding how inequalities, like structural inequalities, manifest in people's body beyond their phenotype or uh, their genetics alone. And also, um, well, the you also mentioned the access to genomic data and how that is also conditioned socially, how you access it. Is that correct, doctor? Yes. So there's two layers, as you have pointed out. One layer is my ability, my being just the general person's ability to access information about their genome and then be able to act upon it. Um, and so, so first, to even be able to to access access that information, you need to have the right testing, which is very expensive. So a lot of people don't have access to those resources. And I'm not just talking about a 23andMe test or something like that, because many of those tests um, have changed over the years where they now include a lot of genes that might be of interest, a curiosity sort of um, information where you find, oh, you know, I'm uh, there's a 50% probability that I'm whatever race ethnicity, which is very problematic. And we can talk about another time uh, how they, how they determine those things and, and, and how insightful uh, those, those sorts of things really are. Um, and then there's other types of tests that are more diagnostic that really provide some of this information about um, health and proge- uh, genetic predisposition predisposition related to health. And those tests are very expensive and hard to access. Now, assuming that you do have the ability to access those tests, then there's multiple types of resources that you need to be able to address those issues. Um, Some of which are educational resources, maybe a provider to guide you. But also, if, if you're someone like me, where you have real difficulties with detoxification and you realize I would really benefit from an all organic diet. Well, having an all organic diet is a huge marker of privilege and I am so aware of it and not everybody can do that. In fact, most people can't do that. Um, so the ability to, to, to be able to influence your genes also has to do with your context. I remember when I was volunteering in Oakland in one of the more dangerous parts of Oakland, and I was teaching Guatemalan refugees English in, in their homes. And many of these people told me that they were not able to go exercise um, because it, they were environments with a lot of drive-by shooting. And so they couldn't just go for a run in the park and they couldn't afford a a gym membership. So part of what I did was actually give workshops to teach them, you know, um, body weight exercises that were, um, resistance exercises and also cardio exercises that they could do in place with just the size of a a towel um, on the floor and how to exercise their bodies and be healthful when they don't have access to a gym or even to outdoor spaces that are safe. And so a lot of people are living in these situations where they're really, there's a lot of resource scarcity that um, really falls outside of the purview of functional medicine and, and it's such a shame. Yes, and I think it's very valuable that you also posit all of these things for the reader to keep in mind. Now, moving on to an interlude called A Vampire No More. Could you tell us a bit about it? It's, it's really a lovely interlude. Oh, thank you. I um, had developed 
an allergy to the sun. And really what it was was I was high histamine because of small bacteria, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And so the gut microbiota that I had were producing histamine in my gut. There was a recent article uh, you might be able to find on a man whose gut was basically brewing alcohol in his gut because of the certain microbes that he had. And so he was pulled over because he was apparently drunk and uh, they breathalyzed him. He had, you know, over huge amounts of alcohol, but he swore that he hadn't had anything to drink. And so they took him to the hospital. And even as they treated him, his blood alcohol volume did not go down and he was not drinking anything in the hospital. So they investigated further and found that his gut microbiome was basically a distillery within his own body. So I'm giving you that example to explain that my microbiome in my gut was producing lots of histamine. And it meant that I was just allergic to a lot of things. Um, I had a lot of food sensitivities, but the hardest one to deal with was probably the sun, heat, exercise, anything that made me warm. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't go outside without an umbrella. And, um, I, I decided that I was going to deal with this problem once and for all. And so it felt like being a drug addict who was going through withdrawal because up until that moment, I had been very dependent on um, multiple antihistamines and an allergist had suggested that I would now need multiple doses several times a day and that that would increase over time. And it just seemed so um, unsustainable. So I decided no, this is becoming kind of like a rebound syndrome where the more you take, the worse it gets. And so I was becoming so reliant on these antihistamines just for my very survival, like, or I would go into anaphylactic shock. And so I decided I need to be done with these. And so at the same time, I went on a special diet that was meant, I stopped my antihistamines. And I would go into this withdrawal state where I was just, you know, in anaphylactic shock, having trouble breathing. When that happened, I would rush into the shower and I would just in cold water, as cold as I could possibly make it because heat was the problem. And so getting myself cooler was helping me. Um, And my husband was watching me do this and he was really concerned for my well-being. And he was saying, Rosalind, like perhaps you need to just take it more incrementally maybe two days is all you can do this time. And then next time we can try again and it can be two days in a few hours. And the next time it could be, you know, two days and and a few more hours and eventually you'll be able to do it. And I was just determined, um, to, to kind of break through this glass ceiling that I felt was there. And so I, I pushed on and after five days I was able to like, like a, like a magic, like a spell had disappeared. I was, it was gone. I no longer had issues with the sun. I could go outside. I went on this wonderful, very liberating um, trip to uh, a ecological reserve near Tulum in um, Quintana Roo. And I had such a good time just feeling so free and um, going on this excursion and watching the dolphins swim and feeling the sun on my skin, something that I hadn't felt for years, and it was glorious. Doctor, uh, moving on to chapter four, it's called 
the political ecology of human microbiology. Will you go in depth into this uh, multi-species ecological units that we are? And do you exemplify it with your own testimony? So could you tell us a bit about that chapter, please? Yes, it's important. I want to point out that human in the title of the chapter is in quotes because I'm really um, throwing into question the ideas of humanity, what it means to be human. We as quote humans are comprised of a hundred times more bacterial cells than human cells. We are seriously outnumbered. So the question becomes, what does we even mean? What does it even mean to be quote human? Um, our bodies also are comprised of viruses, including retroviruses. A virus similar to HIV was responsible for the encephalization of our brain, meaning this explosion in our brain that allowed us to be the, the thinking um, species that we are now. And so we think of bacteria as germs and viruses as germs, but really they're part and parcel of our very biology and we are outnumbered by them, which makes these terms we and them actually kind of nonsensical. Um, many things that we used to think were sterile, like the brain, like the womb, are not sterile. Um, they have now electron microscope imaging of bacteria in the brain. Also, there's this constant communication of our microbiome. And when I say microbiome, I don't just mean inside the gut. I mean in the gut, on the skin, in the brain, in the womb, in all of our bodies, every single part of us. Um, our, our bacteria communicate with each other as a community and send messages from the gut to the brain, vice versa, via the vagus nerve. And some of the metabolites that they produce through their own chemical processes um, influence our emotions and our thoughts and also may be nutritious to us. Uh, for example, I believe with vitamin K, It's not that the food that we eat possesses vitamin K. It's that the food that we eat is a substrate for particular bacteria in our microbiome that then digest their food and the metabolites that they produce, their, quote, waste product is vitamin K that we then absorb into our bloodstream. And so some of their biological processes we're dependent on for our well-being. So there's kind of a symbiosis that happens. Also, um, many of the, the, microbi the microbiota in our body are responsible for producing neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine that influence um, our, our thought processes and our feelings and our well-being. So if our gut bugs are shaping our thoughts and our feelings and um, how we absorb nutrition from our food. Um, and there's this communication between the, the gut bugs in our gut and, and our brain and what's happening there, then we really need to think of ourselves as holobionts, as these walking, talking communities of microbes instead of just one um, singular human entity. Yes, I think that's very interesting for us to entertain as, um, because we've been raised to think different, right? In an even binary way. Now, chapter five, the social microbiome, you 
you kind of keep on discussing this regarding the idea that uh, food is medicine, but also there are social relationships involved with the way we eat. Now, could you tell us a bit about Chapter 5, please? Yes, there's um, a lot of work that is indicating that even more so than your genetics and your family members, that the health and well-being and lifestyle and nutrition of your closest friends is even more of a predictor of your health um, because your social network very much determines your microbiome, who you live with, your roommate, if you have a spouse, if you have a dog in your house. These things, your day-to-day social interactions are determining the microbes in your body. Um, And so when we talk about sociality and how it shapes us, it really does in a very sort of um, material, microbial, biological sort of way. I also argue, though, that we need to think about the structural issues and the structural inequality in the sense that people who don't have access to nutritious food and they don't have access to um, green spaces, how that is shaping their microbiome in harmful ways and how those sorts of lack of, of, of resources and especially social support, how that manifests in their bodies. Yes. Um, right after that chapter, there's another interlude. It's called toxicity. And I find it very interesting because from a day-to-day perspective, you talk about all the toxicity involved in our day-to-day life with the objects that are in our houses, whatever it is that we consume, whatever it is that we clean our houses with. Could you tell us a bit about that interlude? Yes. Well, me in particular, because I have an issue with detoxification, and that's my personal vulnerability. I am so hyper aware of all of the things that we are exposed to. For listeners, a very good resource is the Environmental Working Group, EWG. Um, and they also have that that is talking a lot about household products, um, cleaning products. They also have a branch that is about food that you can also use an, as an app on your phone. And they have a branch that is about skincare. And for example, with the skincare app, you can scan a, a barcode of any product that you want, you're looking at in the store, and it will tell you all the peer-reviewed literature, all the findings about whether or not individual ingredients are potentially carcinogenic, whether they are allergenic, whether they produce reproductive toxicity, uh, neurotoxicity, so on and so forth. And so it's all peer-reviewed literature. But once you start to understand all the things that we are exposed to in the day-to-day, for me, it was a process of just purging my house cleaning out everything that I put on my body, put in my body, surround myself with. And it's an expensive process. Now I'm actually quite adept at making things, making my own skincare, making my own household cleaning products, so it's so on and so forth to save some money. Um, 
But even there, there's a lot of inequality. There is a um, project at UC Berkeley or in the Central Valley in California where I was doing my MPH uh, at the same time as I was doing my PhD. And it's called the Chamaco Study. And they are um, documenting the health effects of living in agricultural communities on young people and um, you know, being exposed to those agricultural chemicals and living in proximity to that, how it affects the local community. I, again, have so much privilege because I'm here trying to keep my house as um with the least amount of toxins as possible. And yet there are people who are you know, working in industries where it's absolutely unavoidable. And those people tend to be, um, their, their health is, is on the line because they are structurally, they're vulnerable from a, a, a structural inequality perspective. And I really wanted to point that out. Yes, doctor. And personally, it's one of those chapters that made me rethink my day to day life and question me question things that I go on not consciously. And I think it's also why this is a powerful book beyond uh, anthropological interest. I think it's of general interest. Uh, now we're approaching the end of the book. Now the conclusion is called Food and Justice. Could you tell us a bit about that, please? Yeah, food justice. Um, so I'm basically, there's this doctor uh, named Dr. Mark Hyman, and I agree with him on many things. Um, he has a book called Food Fix, and he's basically arguing, if we're talking upstream, right, um, we talked already about the problem of pharmaceuticalization, the problem of medicalization. Upstream from that, what's causing people to have these chronic diseases in the food place in the first place, sorry, Freudian slip. And often the answer is food, right? And so he documents kind of um, the, the economic interests of big agriculture and how that is often intertwined with food subsidies of the U.S. government and how there are lobbyists who, uh, there's this revolving door where Individuals work inside of the government structure and then are lobbyists for, you know, private companies and so on and so forth. And they just um, revolve in and out and how that creates a situation where food subsidies in the United States are not primarily for the most nutritious foods that the population would really benefit from, but rather for these crops that um, are certain certain very powerful large monolithic companies are um benefiting from creating huge profits off of and so i also talk in in that chapter about uh glyphosate so very specific kind of i talk about the chemicals that are being used um genetic modification of our food and how that affects the food, which in turn, how that affects our bodies and the biology of that. And um, I turn to the words of food activists and um, food activists within the functional medicine community as they are arguing for food justice. 
And I really think that food justice is a matter of social justice because food, I argue, with functional medicine interlocutors is probably the number one most important resource, health-creating resource that we have. And if our food system is so incredibly tainted um, and, and decrepit, and I think that that's the leading cause to our, our health crisis where four in 10 Americans have a chronic disease and six in, uh, sorry, six in 10 Americans have a chronic disease and four in 10 have two or more chronic diseases. And that statistic, I believe is only going to get worse as my generation ages. And as my daughter's generation ages, as you had mentioned earlier, um, Children today are suffering from ADHD and um, food allergies, peanut allergies, like never before. The schools in the United States have, you know, allergen-free cafeteria sections or peanut-free, nut-free tables. And when you take your child to daycare, the very first thing they ask you, does she have any food allergies? Because food allergies are so common now in our children um, where you couldn't bring, you know, ants on a log, celery with peanut butter as a snack for the classroom because somebody might have an, uh, an allergic reaction to it. That was not the case when I was a child. When I was a child, autism was very rare. ADHD was not heard of. Okay, you can say that maybe that's just a new, a new, um, not a new phenomenon, but newly categorized and diagnosed and recognized. But, but allergies were also not as prevalent as they are now. And I, along with functional medicine interlocutors, can you know turn to science and say that a lot of these things are emerging because of the really. They're the disastrous outcomes of the things that we have done to our food system. And so I'm arguing for food justice as a matter of social justice. Definitely. And also something that I think is very interesting about what you're discussing in this chapter is the idea of genetic colonization, uh, for example, through GMOs and social actors, sort of speak like Monsanto, um, and I think that's also something useful to think about beyond the United States or even what is the role of uh, the state in regards to that. Should it be a nanny state? Should it be a state that interferes with that and puts a tap on these industries, for example? I think that was very interesting in that chapter. Uh, now, moving on to the ending, to the post loop, health is a process. Could you tell us a bit about it, please? Yeah, so this is the ending of the book, and um, I wanted to leave everyone with where I was at the moment when I was writing the book, and I had come to the end of a health journey per se in the sense that I was no longer in a health crisis. I was enjoying the outdoors and the sun, and in fact, I had gotten pregnant. I carried a baby to term. She was born. She's healthy. She just now, and this is post-postlude, she just learned to walk. She's walking. She's climbing ladders. She's standing on things and trying to open the baby gate. She's trying to climb over the baby gate. So, um, you know, I, I would not be able to have any of this rich joy that's in my heart and the family that I'm creating if it weren't for 
my having gone through this health journey and and come through the other side of a health crisis I will say that another part of when I said per se, and I'm pointing to the fact that health is a process, is that it's never over. So I will continue to have to work on my health for the rest of my life. And I am continuing to work on my health. Um, again, post-postlude, I went through postpartum. And if anybody who is a woman who... <laughs> has been given birth and then, you know, done exclusively breastfeeding. It is a grueling process. My daughter only gave me at the beginning 45 minutes at a time to either sleep or shower or eat or use the restroom or any of those things, but probably not all of them because I only have 45 minutes ever to do anything uh, where she's, you know, not feeding from me basically. And they tortured prisoners doing something like not letting them sleep more than 45 minutes at a time. So uh, for her, you know, she's been extra small and um, I was very committed to breastfeeding. It was over a year before I even had one four hour stretch of sleep ever. It was, I think about 14 months before I had a four hour stretch of sleep. And so that had been that has been challenging to my health. And I'm not going to lie and say, you know, that I'm in the same shape as I was uh, when I wrote the postlude. It definitely set me a few steps back. But I am armed with knowledge, and I'm I have skill a skill set that I developed when I wrote this book, where I know exactly what I need to do um, and how to heal myself. But I think probably the most important thing is that I have that faith that my body is meant to heal. It was created to heal. And I have the the ability to heal it if I listen, if I provide it with the right resources, if I'm kind to myself and others, if I am living with an open heart and an open mind and you know eating well and sleeping well and all the things that I need to do to be well, that the body wants to heal. Um, and the way that I explain this to other people is, you know, if you get a paper cut or something, you can observe it right on your skin as your body just closes the cut, scabs over, heals itself. We are healing machines. And so even when we are chronically ill and we're dealing with something, all we need to do is provide ourselves with the right resources so that that healing can happen because the body wants to heal. And now that my daughter is, you know, um, past that, those early stages of being a newborn and where feeding is tough and you're totally sleepless and all that. Now that she's a toddler with very strong opinions and climbing over the baby gate and doing all those things, I can start to refocus on my health and um, focusing some of that time and resource on getting myself back to to the best health that I can be. Uh, that's great. I, I feel as if this was another postlude because it's, yeah. it speaks a little, <laughs> a little bit of what happened after. I also feel this is a beautiful ending to the book because it makes it not only an interesting book, but a beautiful one, an endearing one, a personal one. And I think that creates a connection with the reader. Now, Dr. Vega, we've taken a, up a lot of your time. I have a final question. What, what's um, in store for you? What's, what, what is it that you're working on currently? Well, I'm glad you asked because there's a sequel to this book. And um, it's tentatively titled Accessing Recovery. And um, hopefully it will be out next year. 
um, in the spring catalog of UT Press. So I'm putting the final touches as far as revisions on it right now. And um, the plan is that, that it will be out in a year. That is so, so impressive, taking into account your maternity and everything that you've mentioned, the fact that you're already working on another book. Uh, congratulations. It sounds like a great project. And I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our, our conversation. <laughs>